I think there's a really big dignity issue when you're making someone who has already humbled themselves enough to come and say, I need help. You're making them prove essentially, I really do need help and I'm not just trying to take advantage of this free resource. And I think that's really just a huge dignity issue. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, this is Ronit. Thank you very much for tuning in to And Then Everything Changed. This is the last episode for season one. Season two is going to begin in January 2020 with a whole bunch of new content. If you would like to learn more about the guests on my show, or more about the podcast itself, please go ahead and visit atecpodcast.com or you can go to Facebook where there's a community discussion group at And Then Everything Changed on Facebook and just scroll down to the groups. That way you can learn more about the guests and listeners can learn more about each other and I can learn more about you and you can learn more about me and we can also grow the community. Thanks for listening and subscribing and for telling your friends about the show and for rating and reviewing. I appreciate it all. Happy, happy holidays. Today I'm speaking with Natalie Nation, a master's of public health student at the University of Minnesota and a food justice. Well, how did you put it? So I would call myself a food justice advocate. Right. And what is a food justice advocate? So an advocate is somebody who advocates, obviously, and in the topic of food justice, we're talking about social justice issues having to do with food, and that can range anywhere from, you know, where the food is grown, in farms, wherever it is, all the way through in households where food is being consumed. So any food justice issue somewhere in that spectrum, and a lot of what I've been working with has been food insecurity specifically within food justice and food insecurity. There's a lot of different definitions, but the way I like to define it is a situation in which a person has a lack of access to adequate amounts of nutritious, culturally appropriate foods. And your niche has been so far at the university level. Is that right? Yes. I've been working specifically with college students. And you came to that how? I think I've always been interested in food justice and social justice, but I didn't really start to think about it until I began doing work with my campus's community garden at St. Catherine University, where I did my undergrad. And then through working on the community garden and then trying to connect community garden produce to the food shelf, sort of realizing this bigger issue of students all over campus for a number of reasons, not having enough to eat or not having access to foods that were nutritious in adequate amounts to keep them healthy. And do you feel like the people that you interact with on campuses are aware of the peers, their peers having issues with food insecurity? I think so. I think from my experience, in talking to students, either they experienced or have experienced food insecurity at some point, or they know one or more people who is struggling with it. And it's a really common issue. I think it's a lot more common than most people think. 
Do you have statistics? Because I feel like when we spoke once before, you had shared with me something that seemed really high in terms of food insecurity on campuses. Yeah. So research um, will depend. Individual campuses obviously will have different percentages of students that report food insecurity, but the statistics generally sit somewhere between 15.15 and 40.40% for four universities for four-year universities. And the number at community colleges can be 50% or upward. It's incredibly high. But even mm-hmm. within this 15 to 40% range at most four-year universities, we have different discrepancies in terms of students who report food insecurity and then knowing through statistics about financial aid that many more students are at risk for food insecurity because they're very likely to be financially insecure. Yeah. And is there a range? So you're saying that, that it does go up in community colleges, but the number that surprised me was the one for campuses that are pretty much have dorms and things like that. Because when I was in college many years ago, I, that didn't even cross my mind, food insecurity in my peers. I just assumed if you had money to go to college, um, you had money to eat. And it seems like that is not always the case. It's definitely not. And I think that's a big misconception and something that a lot of students kind of struggle with, especially because at the undergrad university I attended, St. Kate's, it's a private Catholic women's college. So there's a lot of, I guess, stereotypes about being able to afford a private college, when in reality, private colleges are incredibly expensive. So chances are, if you attend one, you're spending an awful lot of money or you're taking out an awful lot of loans to be able to go at all. And then- Mm -hmm. Colleges in general, it's a trend that we all know that colleges are getting more and more expensive, but financial aid packages and scholarships are not increasing the same amount and wages are not increasing the same amount. So college is really just getting more unaffordable and unattainable for people. When you were younger, um, before maybe you would have called yourself a food justice advocate, you said that you had some sort of leanings towards social justice, but did anything in your family of origin lend itself to this kind of awareness or concern about people being able to feed themselves? I was very privileged to grow up in a household where we always had enough to eat. You know, my parents had good jobs. And even though I came from a big family, we always uh, had enough money to be able to do the things we needed to do and some of the things that we wanted to do as well. So I don't have any personal experience with food insecurity. And I feel like when talking about this subject, I always try to let people who do have those experiences have the floor. But part of being an advocate is creating those spaces for people who have these experiences to share their stories where they might not have previously felt comfortable or felt safe to do so. And so as you began getting involved at St. Kate's, you were working with or volunteering for what was called the food shelf. Is that right? Yep. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I had never heard of anything like that before myself. Yes. So the St. Kate's food shelf, and I'll say that food shelves on college campuses across the country are growing. I think I heard a statistic that there's 600 food shelves at colleges around the country and more are being developed and opened every day because of the need. And Mm -hmm. the St. Kate's food shelf, I love the story of how it came to be because it was a group of concerned faculty and staff from around campus 
who were all interested in this idea of food insecurity, food justice in their students. And it actually came from a history professor who had done a project on homelessness on college campuses and had found that many of the stories that students were telling about homelessness had to do also with food insecurity. So they had all these ideas, all these professors and faculty members and staff members coming together to talk about it and figuring out, well, how can we meet this need that our students obviously have? And one of the projects that was the most successful was the food shelf. So the food shelf opened, it piloted in the spring of 2017, and then it was um, opened permanently on, I think, fall of 2017, so later that same year. And how do you get, how does St. Kate's get the food donations? Where does that come through? It comes through a variety of areas. We actually have a ton of interested alumni who have heard about the work we're doing and want to donate money or want to donate resources to us. And that's been incredible to have a really supportive alumni community who really believes in the work we're doing. So that's mm-hmm. where a lot of our money comes from. And through that, we can purchase food through a food bank called Second Harvest Heartland, which is essentially, I would call it a food shelf or a grocery store for other food shelves. So they get huge donations of maybe pallets and pallets full of canned goods that were extra from a manufacturer or maybe General Mills has a ton of cereal boxes that have a little mistake on the label. So we get all those mistake cereal boxes that, you know, it's all quality food. And through Second Harvest Heartland, we are able to then purchase food for our food shelf at much more reasonable prices. And we are able to purchase much more food per dollar than we would at a traditional grocery store, which I think is really incredible. We also get Uh, We work with an organization called Twin Cities Food Justice to get uh, local produce from co-ops. So they rescue produce that's on its way out from co-ops and then redistribute it. And we get, you know, a box or two at the food shelf every week of really quality organic produce that, yes, is on its way out. Yes, might be a little wilted or a little dented, but is still really quality calories and nutrition that we can put into the hands of students. That's pretty remarkable. What what is the climate like when students go in to grab their food? Like, what is the transaction like? At the St. Kate's Food Shelf, we've been very intentional to create a very welcoming space. Um, I know a lot of food shelves that are out in most communities, when you go, you have to give your name and you have to essentially prove that you have enough need. You have to prove that you have enough need to access that resource. And we knew right from the beginning that that was not something we wanted to do for students at St. Kate's. We did not want to be gatekeepers because I think there's a really big dignity issue when you're making someone who has already humbled themselves enough to come and say, I need help. You're making them prove essentially, I really do need help and I'm not just trying to take advantage of this free resource. And I think that's really just a huge dignity issue. So with St. Kate's students, they're welcome to come and it's completely anonymous. They don't have to give us any identifying information. And they walk in, we say hello, and we point out if they've never been before, we'll point out where our pantry is and then where the produce is and let them know that they can ask us any questions. And at the end, we do collect 
information about the food itself and then a little bit of demographic information. So we will weigh the food that they take so we know how much is being taken, which helps us know how much to purchase in the future. And then we will ask them if they are part of the associate program, the undergraduate day program, the undergraduate program for adults or the graduate program. And we'll ask them how many people live in their household and just a couple of other questions like that so that we can get a better sense of who our students are and how much need they have. Do you have a sense, uh, without going into personal details, about what that demographic is like? Do you see a trend or have you noticed any kind of consistency in the type of student who needs the support? I think it's pretty mixed. We do see quite a few student parents and second degree students, so non-traditional students. And we also see quite a few international students, which is really interesting to me. And I think as we at St. Kate's continue to get better at targeting and reaching the students who need it most, I think we will probably start to see more students from programs like the graduate program and the associates program. But it's, it's a pretty mixed bag, actually. Obviously, mm-hmm. since St. Kate's is a women's college, we have a very high percentage of women. But, you know, there are men who are in a few sure. of the different graduate and adult programs. So we do have a few men, but it is, by and large, hugely women. What year were you in at St. Kate's when you began your involvement with the food shelf? It was towards the end of my sophomore year that I started to get involved through the community garden and through developing the community garden and figuring out how to get produce grown there by students into the hands of students at the food shelf. And then my interest in the food shelf and in working with those students just really meshed nicely into my junior and then senior year. And it sounds from what you're saying that you might still be involved a little bit at St. Kate's. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I attend the University of Minnesota now for my master's degree, so I'm obviously busy with that. But The U is in Minneapolis and St. Kate's is in St. Paul. I live in the area, so I enjoy keeping in contact with the group that's still doing the amazing work. And I try to go to the monthly meetings when I can. It kind of depends on my schedule, but I love hearing about the successes they're having. And it sounds like this year in particular, the food shelf has really blown up around campus. A lot more students are hearing about it and then accessing it as they need it. You've been to conferences as a speaker, is that right? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about those experiences? Yeah, it's really exciting to get to talk about the work we do. And it's sort of interesting to speak at conferences about working. Usually the presentation is something along the lines of addressing food justice issues at a small Midwestern college or something like that. And We do have some statistics or objective data, but we really focus the presentation on storytelling. And instead of turning it all into statistics, you know, this many students have accessed the food shelf and this many students are food insecure, we try to turn it into real stories about real people. Because I think it's very easy to get lost in the statistics. You know, when you say, oh, 15 to 40 percent of students are food insecure, well, that's just a number. So usually when I present that statistic, I also add that is 15 to 40 percent of any any students in any classroom, in any dorm, in the cafeteria, walking down the street. That is your classmates. That are the people you're sitting next to. You probably know somebody who is if you are not food insecure yourself. And it's just so many people. And I usually say that 
and people look around the room and it's like their eyes have been opened like, wow, I never would have thought so many people could be experiencing this. What are the main objectives you have when you go to these conferences? We usually try to draw the points of our successes, which has been largely that the Food Shelf started as a grassroots project and didn't really have any university approval or administrative oversight. It was just something that a group of professors wanted to do, figured out how to do, and then did, which I think is really incredible in terms Mm -hmm. of it shows so much initiative and it's been so successful that I think inspiring other universities to take action in grassroots alternative ways can be really powerful. We also try to highlight that not every intervention is going to work for every college. For example, one of the very first interventions that the food shelf group or the committee started was instead of doing a food shelf, they thought, well, what if we just put snacks around campus for people to grab if they need them? And that wasn't as successful because there's already a lot of free food around campus and it was confusing to students. Well, who is this really for and do I really need it? And then it was also because they had to sit in bowls Mm -hmm. in the middle of the library or whatever all day. It was processed food and snack food and it wasn't what students needed. So, you know, that that project wasn't a great fit for St. Kate's, but it could be a great fit for another university with different students. Yeah. And you have also been continuing your work in this field at the master's level. Is that right? Yep. I'm a master's of public health student. So what are your major areas of interest at this point? At this point in public health, I am still very interested in food insecurity, particularly in college students, but I don't want to pigeonhole myself into only doing one thing in undergrad and then only doing one thing as a master's student. I'm trying to really open up Um, more learning opportunities and more opportunities to explore what I'm interested in and what I'm good at. And what I'm finding is that I really enjoy education and I really, really enjoy working with teenagers and young adults specifically. I think there's a lack of genuine educational engaging resources for that age group, you know, the 15 to 24 year old age group. And so I really love getting to produce content or do educational sessions or really just do anything with that age group, I think, in terms of teaching them about nutrition, about food insecurity, about their bodies, really anything in that area is something I'm interested in. And you're not that far off from that age group. Is that right? I'm not totally sure. um, No, I'm 23. I'm very much still in that (laughs) age group. (laughs) Um, And so do you count as a millennial or are you in the next generation? It sort of depends on who you ask. I was born in 1996, so I'm kind of right on the cusp of the millennial Gen Z. My sister-in-law would call it I'm a Gen Zennial, but I'm right kind of in that middle stage of people who grew up knowing what a smartphone was, but not necessarily growing up from birth knowing how to use one. Right, right, right. Um, And so you're, in my opinion, as someone who is definitely not in your generations, either one of them, I'm far older than you. um, I feel like you are quite an example of someone very young taking your, your causes and what you care about, you know, seriously. And do you feel like people who are older than you get surprised by your passion or by your interest? 
I think so. And I think I was really lucky that in working with the faculty and staff members on the food shelf, they were always willing to allow me to take leadership roles and allow me to make my voice heard. At a lot of the conferences we would present at, if I was presenting with my faculty members, they would allow me to do a lot of the talking and answer a lot of the questions and really advocate for my age group. And I think that's another piece of what we would really put a lot of emphasis on when we were talking is the importance of allowing the students' voices to shine through and allowing student wants and needs to really guide whatever programs or interventions are being put in place. As I said, I didn't personally experience food insecurity, and I'm very privileged to not have, but it was always something on my mind when I was sitting in on committee meetings or talking to groups of students or staff is what do I know about the students I work with and what do they need and what do they want and how can I make sure that their voices get heard? Yeah. And your family or do you come from a family of people who are advocating for others or are you one of the few? Um, I don't really know. I think I'm definitely one of the more talkative people in my family. We're all very loud though when we all get together. <laughs> I have five brothers and sisters and my parents have always raised us to you know, say what we believe in and support, and they've supported us through everything. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to get through college and my master's program without the support of my parents. So, yeah. And how far into your master's program are you? I just finished up my first semester. So, this program I'm in is a combination master's of public health with a concentration in nutrition. And it's also coordinated with a dietetic internship, which is 1,200 supervised practice hours in order to become a registered dietitian nutritionist, which is a licensed medical professional. So this program is pretty long because of all that kind of packed in. So I just started this fall 2019, and I will graduate at the end of summer 2021. Okay. And do you want to work in, do you want to be a dietitian? Is that part of it? Or like, what's your master plan, Natalie? (laughs) That's a good question. I definitely want to become a registered dietitian. I think in terms of having a license and the ability to practice and give, you know, medical nutrition advice and hopefully work with individuals and populations, I think having that RDN credential will be really powerful in terms of not that I need um, people to take me seriously, but I need the recognition of the credential, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, with or without being a dietitian, I think I would have always ended up, you know, in the field of advocating and educating. So, and what would you like people to know, people who don't know much about food insecurity and what's happening on college campuses? What's a really important thing that listeners should know, or what are some ways people can help? So, I think something that a lot of people don't know. And this is certainly something that I had to learn and experience when I was just starting work in food insecurity is that food insecurity falls on a huge spectrum. And when I say food insecurity, people who might have a little idea of what it is mostly think about the extremes. They think about the poorest of the poor people. And I hate saying poor people, but that's a commonly used term. You know, the people who literally have no food to eat, who do not know where the next meal is coming from, You know, you kind of think of like the starving children in Africa gimmick. Mm -hmm. But food insecurity, like I gave the definition before, it's really just anyone with a lack of access, safe, reliable access to adequate amounts of nutritious food. And that 
you know, could be anyone from someone whose car has broken down and they can't get to the grocery store by bus because it's unsafe because they would have to go at night and they're a woman. Or it could be somebody who, I'll tell this story. I had a friend who contacted me asking me if he could borrow a pot and a pan. And when I met up to loan him them, I asked why. And he said at his university, his meal plan had been mistakenly canceled. And so now he was having to figure out either getting his money back or getting his meal plan refigured out while having to get food when he wasn't, you know, he wasn't prepared to have to budget for that. He didn't have the equipment he needed. He didn't, he wasn't living in a space where that was easy for him. Mm-hmm. And he said he realized through listening to a podcast that I, I had done last year on food insecurity that he too was food insecure. And that was what inspired him to reach out for help, which was really like touching to me. And I think in terms of especially what I want college to college students to understand about food insecurity is that it's okay to have a need and your need is going to look different from somebody else's need, but that doesn't mean that your need or your struggle is not valid. And it doesn't mean that you should not seek out help if you don't think your need is enough, because if you have a need, then that is enough and you should seek out help because you deserve it. Wow. That's very powerful. Um, so are you going home for Christmas to your big family or? I'm going home for a little bit to spend time with my family and spend time with my husband's family. We're going to spend some time in North Dakota and probably some time in Wisconsin too. Not going anywhere warm, unfortunately. I was going to say you're hitting all the cold areas, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm sure you're used to it and you're prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, so where can listeners find out more about you and please talk a little bit about the podcast and your links and all that stuff. Yeah. So I have a podcast and more recently a YouTube channel called Feed That Nation um, after my last name, Natalie Nation. (laughs) And on there, I talk a lot about health and nutrition and college life topics from the perspective of me, a real life college student who's actually like lived these things and knows about these things. And really the goal is, or the reason I started the podcast in the first place was I was seeing a real lack of resources for health and nutrition targeted at college students and young adults that actually made sense or that were actually entertaining and accessible because a lot of resources are either, you know, the government websites that talk about this many servings of fruits and vegetables and all the boring stuff, (laughs) or it's a lot of health influencers on social media who are just trying to sell you stuff. And there's no real middle ground between educational and entertaining. So that's sort of what I'm hoping to be creating on Feed That Nation. Great. And then there's also your website because you do photography too. Is that right? A little bit of photography, more of a hobby than anything else, but it's definitely something I enjoy. Okay. Well, we'll definitely, I'll have your links in the show notes and, um, I feel like, is there anything I haven't asked you about the work you do that you would like to add? I would say that I think I was super lucky in my undergrad to have faculty and staff that I was working with that really, really wanted me to succeed. And they really wanted me to be a part of what was going on. And even in meetings where I was the only student in the room and everyone else in the room had a master's degree or multiple PhDs or was tenured or whatever, they were always so respectful. And they always opened up the floor for me to say what I needed to say. 
And that in itself gave me a lot of confidence to be able to speak out more and speak up more. So I would say, especially to college students and young adults out there, don't be afraid to speak up and speak out and gain confidence through doing that because your voice is important and you matter. And I would like to speak to the older people listening, which is make sure that you give room for the younger people to talk because we we older people don't know everything. That's important too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Natalie, thank you so much for making the time. It was really, really great to have you on. And um, you are my very first youngest guest. So I'm so grateful for you to have been able to come on and, and share what you know. Thank you. This is the first podcast I've ever guest spoken on. So this is really exciting for me too. Oh, I'm super happy you were on and I can't wait to publish this episode next week for Christmas time. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have a good holiday. You too. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.